We're looking down the barrel of a long, cold winter. From low wages to soaring rents, battle lines are being drawn between working people and everyone else. Some politicians took advantage of the pandemic to help landlords and big business. Now, ordinary people are being asked to bear the brunt of our economic woes. But there have been moments of brightness over the past few years where the truth has shone through. We have a choice about how we run the economy. As we face the biggest squeeze in living standards since the 50s, who is actually trying to build an economy that works for everyone? From strikes for better pay to campaigns against new fossil fuels, people across the UK are demanding something better. In this mini-series of the New Economics podcast, we'll discover how our economy has been run over the past few years and look at the key battlegrounds for those fighting to change the rules. There are lower paid people and there are wealthy people in this society. And what's wrong in this society is that there is an imbalance between the people that do the work to keep this country going, who create the wealth of our civilization and don't get a fair share of that wealth because it's going to people who are vastly wealthy. As the first week of rail strikes came to an end in June, Google searches for the phrase join a union had increased by 184%. News channels and politicians didn't seem to know what to make of the broad public support for the striking rail workers. Inspired by the RMT union, the unrest spread. Criminal barristers, BT workers, posties and teachers are just some of the people exploring strike action. We're in crisis and right now we're laying down the line. We're saying no more. And we're asking the government to take us seriously. If we don't, the criminal justice system is going to grind to a halt. We didn't create that crisis. We didn't create that situation. We're striking because we're out of other options to address it. We're not just fighting for ourselves here. We're fighting for this great public service, which is still relevant and over five years, 500 years old. And this United Kingdom should be so proud of this postal service and do everything they can to protect it. So... After decades of union busting, wage stagnation and decimated rights, are workers finally saying enough is enough? Why has the public suddenly got behind striking workers? And what would happen if we held a general strike? Every single person in this country has benefited from rights which have been secured by trade unions and the right to strike, including minimum wage, maternity pay, sick pay. These are all things which, before they were made law, were won by trade unions and they benefited everybody. There is a different mood in the UK today. I think people are realising now that it doesn't matter what the crisis is, whether it was the financial crisis in 2008, the pandemic, the current cost of living crisis, the climate emergency, uh, people are realising that they always end up paying the price. And I think people are saying enough's enough. The answer is not to say everyone, you know, battle against these workers who are really just fighting to maintain their wages. It's to say everyone join a union. Welcome to this special mini-series of the New Economics podcast. This week, we're asking, did 2022 have a hot strike summer? I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay with us. So this week, I'm really pleased to be joined down the line by Sean Elliott, Senior Policy Officer at the Trades Union Congress. Hi, Sean. Hi there, Aisha. Thanks so much for being with us. And I'm also chuffed to be joined by Sarah Jaffe, journalist and author of Work Won't Love You Back, Ain't It the Truth. Hi, Sarah. Hello. Thanks for having me. 
No worries. Thanks so much, both of you. Let's dive in. Uh, so as I said in the intro, it's been called a hot strike summer. So Sean, first of all, can you tell us some of the sectors who have threatened or carried out strikes over the last few months, just to give us a bit of an overview? We're seeing a, a wave of strike action, but also deep industrial unrest across a whole range of sectors. We've seen in public sector, for example, we've already had strike action taking place in rail. There's action coming up on the buses. We've also seen it in other areas too. We know that over six out of 10 of those working in the public sector are looking this autumn towards industrial action. And that's a result of 12 years of government imposed pay cuts that have left families facing this cost of living crisis that's only set to worsen uh, this winter with energy bills set to soar over £4,000. Workers, exactly as you said, Aisha, at the intro, are saying enough is enough. They cannot continue to receive the levels of pay cuts that they're having. But also much of the action that we're seeing is about precarious work, is about what happens when work is outsourced. So a lot of that action taking place on rail, for example, are those who are outsourced cleaners or caterers working on our trains and rail network that receive very different pay and terms and conditions from those workers who are directly employed. And what a lot of those workers are just simply asking for is equal pay, equal treatment, equal right to terms and conditions with the colleagues that they work alongside of. I mean, that sounds more than fair enough to me. Thank you for that quick overview. So how has the government, just to stay with you for a sec, Sean, how has the government responded to this? Do you think they've got a vested interest in breaking the strike action? And and have we seen that play out? The government have created this situation. This Conservative government have presided over the worst period of wage stagnation for 200 years. The average public sector worker is losing at least £130 a month in real terms on their pay in comparison to this time last year. And what we've seen, if we take the rail dispute, for example, is the government actually stoking and prolonging the dispute. Every time the unions sit down with the bosses of the rail companies, whenever they reach any moment where they can have an agreement, the rail bosses have to step out the room and make a call to the Secretary of State and to the Department for Transport, who really are the puppet masters and holding the strings behind the scenes. And that's because the government need to stoke a culture war on this, because right now they're failing to get the economy back into shape. They're failing to tackle the issues that working families need them to face. And so it's quite convenient for them to stoke a culture war with unions because it distracts us all from the real issues of the day. And again, I think this is why we're seeing workers, this sense of momentum spread across not only the public sector, but into the private sector too, where people are saying, this is enough. We're not going to put up with you trying to take away our rights. And again, that's what we're seeing for Proposals from the uh, Minister for Transport has put forward proposals that would further undermine people's working rights 
to organise and to effectively get a fair deal at work. And so we think the government's way of handling this is just to remove and reduce people's rights even further. And that will only serve to ensure that this broken economic model that they're pursuing continues where the wealthy get wealthier and everybody else, including those in the middle where the the middle is collapsing, pay for those on medium incomes is, is absolutely collapsing and has been stagnating for the last decade. This will continue that economic model where workers are made to pay while the wealthy profit even more than they already are. Interesting. I mean, I want to unpack the wage stagnation and, as you were saying, the kind of the government response more as we move through this episode, because it just feels like there's so much to talk about. Not not least, it's very likely we'll be in a situation where there is, you know, a continuation, as you say, of this really kind of targeted, organised attack on industrial action, on collective mobilisation of labour power. And that's something that I think progressives should be taking really seriously. But for now, I want to take a step back and look at how we got here. So the price of everything from energy bills to food is skyrocketing, just as you were saying, Sean, but our wages have stagnated. So let's zoom in on that a little bit. Sarah, maybe you could tell us a little bit more about the why. Yeah. So I, as your listeners can tell, I'm American. So I, I am not as deeply rooted in British labor struggles as I am in the US. But what we're talking about mostly is years of global crises, right, that have affected people in different countries in very similar ways. So we're looking at austerity policies. We are looking at work under COVID. I think this is a really important point to note that whether the workers who are taking industrial action or thinking about it are in the public or private sector or formerly, you know, nationalized industries, these are the essential workers of the pandemic, right? These are people who kept going to work to make sure that things kept functioning at really increased risks to their health and safety for the last couple of years while some of the rest of us were able to, you know, shelter in place and work from home. And so there is an added bit of anger that I think is really important to talk about right now, that it's not just that people's pay is being cut. And it's not even just that people's pay is being cut while prices skyrocket and profits skyrocket. But it's really that like, they were told over and over again, you're heroes for going to continue to go to work, right? How many times did we clap for the NHS? But then they get a 1% pay offer, a 2% pay offer. And it's just the insult on top of like very, very real injury, I think is the thing that makes this moment so potentially explosive. And then of course, we've got this massive cost of living crisis looming and the way that everybody talks about inflation. And again, you all can probably speak to this better than I can because I'm not an economist, but inflation is a choice right? Inflation is not just like a force of nature that happens. Inflation is price increases that don't have to happen. I mean, some of them are happening because of things we can't particularly help, like uh, Russia invading Ukraine. But BP is, is collecting record profits, right? These train companies essentially have their profits guaranteed by the government. You get sort of the worst of private and public sector when it comes to rail in Britain. And Workers know this, right? Last year in the States, when we saw a wave of strikes, I was talking to workers from like Nabisco and Frito-Lay, who, you know, they knew that these companies were raking in the profits during the pandemic. We were all eating junk food. I certainly ate plenty of it. And they're not only working sick, they're not only working 
without any extra protection. They're watching their coworkers get sick and nobody's sort of being brought in to fill the gaps. So they're working forced overtime, all of this. And they're just really, really done with all of the sacrifices always being forced onto them. I mean, yeah, it, it makes it makes so much sense. And I think that with the US comparison, it'd be good to go a little bit deeper into that. Because as you were saying, these are global trends that are playing out here in a particular way, but also playing out there in a particular way. You know, there's, there's, it seems sometimes we overplay the, the comparisons, um, but it would be great to hear a little bit more about how, you know, has the US had a hot strike summer? Is it, are we, yeah, like how, what's going on in, in both of the different locations and what can we learn? Yeah, it was a bit funny last year that we sort of branded it Striketober because um, it was like hot strike autumn. Um, but it's been this year, the thing that's really interesting in the States is we're seeing this wave of unionizations in industries that were previously sort of left out or deemed unorganizable. So obviously the big one was the Amazon warehouse and also the Starbucks unions, right? That has just been a, a wave of unionizing Starbucks across the US, including in places like the Deep South that, you know, it's not very easy to win a union campaign anyway. And the interesting thing about that too, is we also saw in Britain, a wave of wildcat strikes at Amazon warehouses. It's actually very funny because I'm, I'm working on a piece that sort of looks at the history of the CIO in the US and the wave of industrial organizing and asks what it would need to have something like that. And I was talking with a historian friend about whether sit-down strikes would be something that's possible in a logistics warehouse, whether they would work the same way as they did in a factory. And then, well, Amazon workers in, in Britain just proved me wrong because they sure did go and have a sit-down strike. And so what we're seeing is sort of workers expressing themselves in, in multiple ways, right? They're either joining or forming unions when they don't have them already. And Sean can probably talk about what we're seeing in terms of people joining unions in this country. We're seeing them strike or take other action if they do have a union, or we're seeing them strike or take action if they don't have a union. And so all of those things are potentially really exciting. And then you can bring into that on top of it, the sort of so-called great resignation. And now there's this, the new hot trend is quiet quitting. I don't know if you guys have heard about this. Not yet, but it sounds so fun. <laughs> well, we just, we, the labor movement has a name for that and it's work to rule right? It's doing exactly what the rules are and no more, which does this double thing of both like slowing down the pace of work because most everybody goes above and beyond in the workplace. And also it proves that the workers actually know better how to run the place than their bosses do. So it's actually one of my favorite tactics. And I, um, it's very funny to hear it sort of redefined for the white collar workforce as quiet quitting. Oh my gosh. That's the whitest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God. We'll do it, but we will do it quietly. Oh, hilarious. Okay. <laughs> um, Sean, so yeah, as, as uh, Sarah was just alluding to there, I, I know that we have some of the most restrictive trade union laws in the world. Um, so it'd be great to hear a bit more from you about where those anti-union laws come from. But also aside from pay, are there other practices which striking workers are protesting against? I mean, this has come up a little bit, but I want to really pin it down. So for example, I know in the aviation industry, some airlines have been firing staff and rehiring them under worse conditions. You know, I just want to make sure that we kind of cover the fact that this is also really about more than pay. And that feels really crucial. It does. And I think 
play is often, and I'm sure it's a deliberate choice by the media, it's often the issue that they foreground. And of course, it's really, really an important issue because everybody deserves to go to work and get a decent day's pay for a hard day's work. That is the kind of social contract on on which our society is built on. But actually, uh, there are lots of other issues going on and, and fire and rehire is a huge one. And often in a workplace, there'll be one or two key issues that will galvanise people's interest if they're not already in a union, will galvanise interest around unionising and organising in that workplace, or around which sometimes you get a kind of real burst within that workplace. So we've seen recently at the Open University uh, a plan to hire over 5,000 staff on insecure contracts, staff there, members of the UCU union really effectively fought against that and won for over 5,000 associate lecturers right to permanent contracts so that people know how often they're going to work, what their monthly income is going to be so that they can plan their monthly budget, so that they can plan childcare, make those kinds of commitments. We saw late last year a really successful defence at Clark's, a kind of household name, really kind of got a real family branding to it. It's where I went to get my son's school shoes and I know it kind of has that resonance across most of Britain. They were trying to fire and rehire their staff on new contracts with lower pay, worse terms and conditions, and they effectively fought that off. But then you also have examples like P&O, where we saw deliberate union busting, where the employers sought to fire all of their staff. And in fact, they did fire all of their staff and replace them with agency staff employed on insecure contracts at a far lower rate than those permanently employed union represented members of staff. So we're seeing all of that go on. And what we're seeing from the government, even though at the time when we had the P&O scandal, we saw that the government expressed their outrage. But actually, in response to the recent rail strikes, they've brought in legislation that allows employers to break strikes by bringing in agency staff and undermining those striking workers' power. So we're definitely seeing the government, the state, complicit with employers and actively working against people who are just trying to to get a better deal whether that's about pay, but whether it's also about having secure work. And and also, exactly as Sarah was saying earlier, many of these workers, whether they're teachers, whether they're our posties, shop workers, whether they're our health workers, social care workers, bus drivers, they were all going out during the pandemic and they were risking their lives in order to keep our country and our economy going. Many of them were doing so without the adequate health and safety measures in place, without PPE that fitted their bodies, without proper safe distancing. And so many of them, I think, you know, and Sarah talked about the great resignation. I think a lot of people have been through that experience and seen, I'm putting my life on the line in some cases. And in some cases, particularly in social care and in bus drivers, where we saw the highest mortality rates of any occupation, People are saying, what am I doing this for? Because if I can't even go to work and keep a roof over my family's head, keep us warm, keep us fed, what am I doing here? And now I'd be asking that question. Um, I want to kind of, just before we move on to talking about the present day in a bit more detail, just really try and drill down on this piece about where these anti-union laws 
come from. I think the kind of, I guess my understanding, and maybe it's a kind of prolific one, is that essentially all of this is about um, Thatcher's response to the mining crisis. You know, as I said earlier, a kind of concerted effort to destroy and disempower organized labor. But I know that there's also some commentators have also accused the unions of trying to repeat the 1979 winter of discontent, which full disclosure, I don't know what that is. I hear it banded around all the time, but it would be great to have a bit more detail, maybe from you, Sarah, in the first instance about what that period of history really was and why it has such a hold on our national psyche. And then Sean, if you have anything to add on just how we got to this place, is it more complicated than Thatcher and the miners? Yeah. So, I mean, the 1970s and the early 1980s were the sort of period of like attack neoliberalism. I'm trying to remember what it is exactly that Will Davies calls it. That was the real remaking society part of this struggle, right? That Thatcher and Ronald Reagan in the States and others, notably Pinochet in Chile, were deliberately crushing the power of unions, trying to break social solidarity as a practice, right? When Margaret Thatcher said there's no such thing as society, there are individual men and women and there are families, that wasn't an actual descriptive statement. That was a thing she was enforcing upon us, right? That was an attempt to make it so. And so to blame the unions to try to reenact the winter of discontent or whatever it is that we're trying to pretend is happening now is really missing who was the aggressor in that moment, right? That these were deliberate attempts to solve um, again, a sort of crisis of inflation and, and of um, things that are described as though they're natural. But at that point in time, workers' wages had actually been growing because we had a stronger trade union movement and profits were being squeezed. And now we just couldn't have that, could we? We can't have working people getting a fair share of the things they produce. I mean, oh my goodness, it's just horrible. Um, you see my, my deep sarcasm here. And so the answer to profits being squeezed in that case was to crush the union so that the workers got a smaller share of what they produced, had less control over the process of producing it and were too cowed to complain. And of course, that came in at the same time as the privatizations that are causing the chaos in the rail system that currently exists. And it came in at the same time as things like pushing people to buy what had formerly been council homes, right? So it's the individualization of society, the privatization of risk onto individual people, um, and the privatization of profits onto a very small proportion of very, very wealthy people. And so it's very funny now because the comparison between the inflation of that period and the inflation of this period is just, again, as you all know better than I do, not accurate in any way, shape or form. But also, again, as I was saying earlier, right, inflation is a choice because inflation is price increases and price increases are always a choice, no matter what Adam Smith says. I actually saw Adam Smith's grave yesterday because I'm in Edinburgh. These are not actually forces of nature. These are the products of human choice. And particularly what happened to the unions was not a sort of union's inevitable obsolescence. It was the result of a very successful assault by the Thatcher government and their allies in capital. And I think I would just sort of add to that. So I think an important point to make is unions aren't reenacting anything. Unions are 
democratic organisations and their democratic membership organisations, they take on disputes in single industrial disputes in workplaces where their members want them to. Nothing is done sort of without them. And I think we sometimes get, and that really suits that neoliberal agenda of talking about government and unions, when actually unions are simply working people acting collectively. And the government and and the media are absolutely complicit, I think, in many parts of the media, present company, of course, excluded, are absolutely complicit in trying to create this them and us scenario, when actually this is all about working people seeking to come together and to take action collectively. And as Sarah laid out, you know, Thatcher really kind of started this off in terms of individualizing, atomizing our workplaces, fragmenting our workplaces so that people are pitted against each other rather than seeing their collective common causes. And exactly as Sarah says, that is principally, it's often about pay that kind of sits at the top, but there are lots of other issues sitting underneath that. And the idea that workers should get their fair share is something that unions and those are union members stand for. But I think it's also something that the public stand for because the public are working people, whether they're sort of families in households where, where they're working or, or, or not. Everybody understands that sense of solidarity and commonality. And I think that's why we're seeing widespread support for industrial action. But also a real raising of the consciousness. And I think that was the other part of the kind of Thatcherite agenda was to remove that political education from our schools, from our workplaces, so that people don't necessarily understand or know some of the history, know what's been won. You know, just thinking about some of the really important moments in our history from the Grunwick strike to the Dagenham strike through to the Matchstick Girls, just thinking about some of the really important feminist struggles in the trade union movement in terms of getting safety at work, equal pay, treated fairly. Unions, and when I say unions, I mean working people have won so many of us rights. And it's really difficult for the government to accept that and to allow that because they're trying to push a very different narrative. They are calling, for example, right now for pay restraint. The inflation that we're seeing is nothing to do with wages. It's everything to do with energy prices, disruption from Brexit and from Russia's invasion of Ukraine, from the pandemic, the problems that's caused with supply chains. Yet it's workers being asked to bear the brunt. Nobody in government or even the Bank of England are talking about, well, let's see what's happening to profits and excess profits. Nothing's been said about that. It's all the workers. And I think, again, this is where some of that public support comes from. We've just lived through 12 years of austerity. We heard this mantra of we're all in this together. When people saw plainly, we weren't all in this together. Six trillion was made in additional wealth during that period, while ordinary families struggled to get access to the public services, to see a doctor when they needed to, to be able to have a good quality social care for elderly relatives, to get on buses or trains when they needed to. People know that that mantra of we're all in this together, workers have to pay, don't ask for more pay, is not right. And so even if people aren't taking action themselves, even if they're in a a comfortable place in their workplace, I think we're seeing 
growing solidarity and momentum stretching out across the public and the private sector. Well, yeah, that was going to be my my next question, really, how people are responding and how the general public, I guess, are feeling about what's going on. Because as we said, we've got this wave of unrest spreading from sector to sector, and it certainly seems like politicians and the media have been taken aback by just how much the public seems to support it. I mean, I remember seeing some quite hilarious footage of like various uh, right-wing commentators and uh, reporters going up to people on the street and kind of asking them, well, you know, don't don't you think the train strikers are, are all kind of selfish and greedy? And then being like, actually, no, I think it's more than fair enough. And they're desperately trying to be like, okay, on, on to the next one then. Oh, thank you very much. And then, and then the same thing happening again. Um, and this is certainly something that we found in the kind of uh, polling and, and focus group work we do at NEON, that, you know, people are generally really behind the idea of especially public sector workers taking concerted action, collective action at this point against exactly everything that you've just been describing, Sean, because people see it. They really do. Maybe to come to you on that one first, Sarah, and then back to you, Sean. In a nutshell, how do you think this is landing? What are you seeing in terms of on the ground, how people are feeling about not only how the economy is kind of, I guess, falling apart at the moment, but how how their relationship to work and to labor and to the idea of industrial action is is changing. Yeah, I think the the shorthand that I've been using for the last couple of years of pandemic life is that like this was a period that workers realize their boss doesn't care if they die. Right, which is an incredibly blunt way to say it, but it's also just been proven true. You were talking about the um the bus drivers having the highest rate of fatalities due to COVID-19. And I think that is, again, something that that many people experienced, even if they're not in these industries that are currently having strikes. And then to be staring down, you know, what, 5,000 pound fuel bills for the winter. So we're seeing, you know, again, like, I think 250,000 people signed up for this Enough is Enough campaign that started by a couple of the unions. I think 100,000 people have signed up on Don't Pay UK, vowing to strike from paying electric bills. And as Sean was saying, the the general public are workers for the most part, right? Like the amount of people who are living on wealth is actually pretty small. But yeah, so I think that the public indignation spills over into sympathy with strikers and also that the workers in a lot of these industries are doing a very good job of what the Chicago teachers in the US call bargaining for the common good, that they're talking about, right? The RMT is doing a great job of talking about that like the rail companies want to eliminate ticket offices. So when you, I had a train canceled the other day and I couldn't figure out if the ticket that I had was good on the next following train. And there, there was like a massive line at King's Cross trying to get information to talk to a ticket agent because they've just been cut back and they want to eliminate those entirely. I ended up just paying for another ticket, hoping that I would get a refund on the first one, which I did eventually. But there is no one to talk to because these services have already been cut back. And people, again, are having these experiences of these privatized industries really being miserable places to try to get anything done. They understand that the NHS has been cut back, that you know emergency services are clogged. And when they hear nurses saying, you know, we need not only we need better pay, but we also need you to hire more people, staff us safely. People really understand that because they're seeing the results of what's happening to people in their daily life. This is the thing about this sort of critical infrastructure workers is that they also have a lot of contact with people like the postal service, right? Your postal worker, you see them maybe not every day, but like you run into them a lot, you know them, 
that's a really personalized face you can have for the labor movement is the person who brings you your packages. Maybe you have a chat. Maybe you know they were the only person you saw for a little while during lockdown. Those people have relationships that can be incredibly powerful in moments of industrial dispute. Absolutely. I mean, just in terms of how the public are responding now in this moment or, you know, to, to the hot strike summer stuff, Sean, off the back of what Sarah was saying, how is that playing out in union membership? Have, have you seen that kind of changing and people feeling like it's becoming more relevant to their lives? You know, I said in the intro about Google searches going up. Um, and yeah, what does your what can your work tell us about shifting attitudes towards strike action? As well as Google searches um, soaring, we also saw we've got a TUC join a union um, finder, union finder you put in your workplace and we'll help you find the right union for you. And we saw visits to that site absolutely soar. I think it was around 184% increase on the same time the previous year. So we know that that kind of consciousness raising that I was talking about earlier, we're definitely seeing that. And I think exactly as Sarah pointed out, we've had real success in the media because it's been so clear that there's an agenda there and a desire to depict unions in a certain way, a way that I think was quite a traditional view of how trade unions looked, who their membership were. And all of that has gone through a massive sea change in the last 50 years. The average union member now, we have more women as part of our membership across the movement than we do men, more likely to work in the public sector. So there are huge changes that as a trade union member, movement we've gone through. And I think that's surprised the media and the attempts to kind of put unions in a particular light and push them in a certain way. And I think that's why we see some of these parallels put forward about kind of some of the similarities about the winter of discontent. But I've been talking to a lot of people that lived through that. And yes, there were some inconveniences, but actually on the ground, there was a huge amount of solidarity. And you only need to look for the solidarity between the LGBT community and striking minors for example, to see that always on the ground amongst working class people and communities, there's always been this sense of solidarity. And I think some of that has always been there. I think some of the context in which the pandemic forced people to live. I know so many people who, for the first time, were joining WhatsApp groups for their streets or their local communities to organise making sure that elderly people or vulnerable people get the food they needed. So I think some of that sense, again, of kind of, we need our communities. It's not only been our workplaces that have been atomised, but it's also our communities that have been atomised. And the pandemic where there are silver linings of it, is bringing back some of that sense of actually we're communal beings, we need each other and being able to rely on each other, exactly as Sarah says, seeing your postie. I had some really compelling testimony from a delivery driver that's an Usdor member. He talked about in the morning, he'd be one of the only people leaving his house at sort of eight o'clock in the morning, going out, going to go and get in his van to go and make deliveries. And that sense that people were waving him off, people when they were opening their door were stopping for a chat. I think we're rebuilding some of that. And what that's turning into is people thinking, well, how can I bring that into my workplace if it's not there already? How can I get more active in my workplace? Some of the things we've seen, for example, like with Me Too a few years ago, we then saw a huge explosion in younger women 
joining unions because they were wanting to be part of a changing workplace and to end cultures of sexual harassment and to be doing something really proactive. And I think that we're seeing these kinds of moments where it's very much at a community level and that's where unions have been working really, really hard to go in at the grassroots, to organise in individual workplaces, to talk to workers, what's the key issues you're facing here? How can we collectively overcome them? And that's leading to changes. And during the pandemic, we saw union membership soar because people could see and understand the very real value that being part of a collective movement gave to them. Mm. I mean, just before we, we wrap up by talking about what else working people in the UK need. Quick question for both of you. Do you predict that the higher levels of support for strike action that we're currently seeing, especially for public sector strikes, will translate into some kind of government pressure that leads to positive action? I mean, I think... We're already seeing a sort of conservative party in disarray, a Labour Party that also doesn't really seem to know what it wants to do when it comes to strikes. And in that moment, there's incredible potential for the labor movement to fill a really like glaringly obvious political gap that's happening here where neither of the two major parties or really any of the minor parties, frankly, are doing much of anything or saying much of anything or offering much of anything in the way of solutions. And so um, it's a really incredible sort of vacuum that they've inexplicably sort of left open for these really incredible voices of the working class. The the media frenzy around Mick Lynch also has a a little bit of a flavor of of condescension. Like, oh my God, a working class person can speak well. And it's like, have you ever been to a union meeting? Like, Yes, of course. And so we're seeing this this space being opened up to hear from working people about the conditions of their own lives in a way that's not mediated by a political party. I don't know that Liz Truss in her literal, you know, Margaret Thatcher drag at the, uh, was it the debate that she wore like the pussy bow blouse to look exactly like Margaret Thatcher? This is not Thatcher's Tory party. This is not Margaret Thatcher. This is that Thatcher, like I was asking somebody yesterday, like if it's second time is farce, what's the third time exactly? They have no answers. And it's up to us now, the labor movement and those of us who think about these issues and write about them from a progressive angle. It's up to us to actually offer the solutions that are really not being offered by anyone in politics right now. Couldn't agree more. Sean, what do you reckon about the kind of public support turning to action piece? I completely agree with Sarah's optimism there, but also that kind of rallying cry of this is up to us. So Liz Truss pronounced plans for regional pay boards deliberately to cut the pay of nurses, teachers, local government workers, civil servants in areas outside of London and the southeast. She announced those plans and then you turned on them within 24 hours. And that was because there was huge public outcry. And that public outcry put conservative backbench MPs, particularly in some of those key red wall areas, under intense pressure. And so they in turn 
put trust under intense pressure. We know we can force U-turns when the public says this is absolutely not good enough. The then Chancellor Rishi Sunak delivered an abysmal spring statement with very little meaningful help for working families. It led to an outcry from across the labour movement. We joined together in coalition with anti-poverty organisations, with civil society organisations, as well as the broader public. And the Chancellor, the then Chancellor, returned to Parliament less than two months later and delivered an emergency cost of living budget because people said this is not good enough. I'm probably quite pragmatic in saying we need to absolutely keep that pressure up. I'm really worried. I was a single mum living on benefits and working during the early years of austerity. And I know what it's like to go to bed every night worrying about how you're going to pay your bills. Are you going to have a bailiff at your door? Do you have enough money left in your bank account to get food on the table so your child can eat? And that is the situation that is facing working households and those that aren't able to work across this country right now as we head into autumn and winter. And that worry will turn into anger and it will hopefully, what I think the Labour movement and what we at the TUC are preparing ourselves to do is to be able to harness that anger and to make sure we channel it into exactly the kind of political pressure that gets the kinds of policy solutions, the immediate targeted help that families need so that they can keep their heads above water this winter. So my final um, question there, just going off the back of what you were saying there, Sean, and, and I, I couldn't agree more. What else do working people in the UK need? I know we've touched upon it a lot, but I want to get really specific just before we wrap up. Is it nationalisation? What kind of alternative ways of being and doing essentially do we kind of need to bring about both in the short term and the long term to avoid us finding ourselves in this situation or a much worse situation in the decades to come? I mean, we need a plan to get pay rising for everyone. We've had the worst wage stagnation for 200 years. That has absolutely got to end. We're calling for a new higher minimum wage. We want to see new rights that strengthen workers' ability to bargain for better pay, but also better conditions at work, rather than uh, new legislation that attacks and undermines workers' ability to bargain effectively at work. We want to see decently funded public sector pay rises and an investment in our public services. We know that when we invest in public services, that money is reaped back in other benefits. It stays within our economy. Whereas when we invest it in sort of because tax cuts cost, we know that all that does is concentrate the wealth within the the already wealthy. Uh, They get to keep more of their wealth and, and far less of it is equally distributed. But crucially, we also need to fix our social security system so that it delivers a real safety net for those who need it. The Bank of England recently predicted that unemployment will rise to to over 1 million by 2025. We're going to need to make sure that we have a safety net in place to ensure that families aren't forced into poverty and destitution, as happened during those austerity years. That needs to happen by fixing universal credit and and legacy benefits, but also making sure that pensions are uprated in line with inflation, because at the moment, that uprating won't happen until next year, when already households are coping with inflation that's at 10% and likely to be near 15% by the end of the year. 
We need a government that's going to get serious about implementing those plans and is on the side of working people. Yeah, I think all of that is incredibly necessary. So I'm going to pivot a little bit because I'm sitting here in Edinburgh looking out the window at a park that is brown. And everybody, I think, saw that satellite image of, of just like brown Britain, right? Where like there's just no green grass anymore. I actually stopped in Liverpool on my way up here from London and I was like shocked to see green grass again. So we're in not only, you know, hot strike summer, but literally the hot part is really important here. We are in the middle of experiencing climate change really directly. Maybe some people feeling it for the first time live in this country. Um, I live in New Orleans, so I'm, I'm used to hot summers, but um, this is ridiculous. And so when we're talking about this moment, we have to sort of be thinking forward too, to like what a working people need. We need a livable planet too. And one of the points that I think the RMT folks have made really well is that like to have a survivable climate, a greener infrastructure needs expanded rail services, greener rail services, rail services run for the people, not for private profits so that we can encourage more people to take trains. I just spent, I think, 300 pounds on trains from London to Liverpool, Liverpool to Edinburgh, Edinburgh to Glasgow, and Glasgow to back. That's bonkers. This country is just not that big. I'm sorry. I'm, again, I'm an American. I you know drive eight hours to get places. The fact that these infrastructures are being cut back at just the moments when we really need them, I think is an important point to make, not just for our immediate you know, ability to live, but also like the long term. And when we're thinking about bus drivers, right, we're thinking about bus drivers who aren't being paid enough or risk their lives during COVID. And now they're driving buses in 40 degree heat and there's no air conditioning. And, you know, I'm on the bus for maybe 15 minutes in London. They're on the bus all day sweating in that. Like we have to actually think about some of these issues now before they get worse. And I think, again, some of these actions that we're seeing right now really dovetail quite nicely to the broad conversation we really, really desperately need to be having about climate change. Absolutely. And I'm really glad that you brought that in, Sarah. I think, unfortunately, it often ends up being the case um, on the podcast that we that it's, it's something that comes up towards the end. But I think that that is um, it's absolutely something that should be the forefront of our of our minds and our concerns in this conversation. So that is all we've got time for this episode of the New Economics podcast. Uh, but Sean Elliott, first of all, thanks so much for joining me. Um, if people want to find out more about your work, which I'm sure they do, and if they want to hashtag join the union, where should they go? What should they read? Our Twitter is at the TUC, at underscore between the and TUC. Have a look on our website, TUC uh, forward slash join a union. You can find out which unions, uh, maybe more than one, will be suitable to representing you in your workplace. And feel free to get in touch at Sean C. Elliott on Twitter. Really happy to answer any questions or talk a bit more about some of the issues we've discussed today. Fantastic. And Sarah Jaffe, again, thank you so much. Same question, how can people get more Sarah Jaffe. <laughs> <laughs> you can find me on the internet at workwon'tloveyouback.org, which is also the name of my book. And you can find me on Twitter at Sarah L. Jaffe. That's Sarah with an H, Jaffe with two Fs and one E. Fantastic. I feel like that. This is not your first time, not your first rodeo saying that. It's very smooth. <laughs> very good. <laughs> Uh, that is it for today's new economics podcast lovely listener but we'll be back soon with more don't you worry if you have enjoyed this episode please tell someone about it as always you can drop us a line with your comments and questions we're at Neff on Twitter the new economics podcast is brought to you by the new economics foundation produced by Becky Malone and researched by Margaret Welsh 
I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay safe. <laughs>